You're listening to Privacy and Security Insights, brought to you by Picasso. Hello, I'm Steve Wright from Picasso. I'm here today to talk to you with two special guests from the Picasso board. Graham Hunt, who is Director of Data Insights at Capgemini, accompanied by Natasha Peterman, Data Privacy Lead in the Netherlands. Good day to you both. Welcome to this episode four of series one of the Picasso Privacy and Security podcast series. I'm really, really pleased that you're both joining me today. And guess what? We are talking about a very, very topical subject of generative AI and data privacy. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. So we've got about 15, 16 minutes to talk about this subject. And as you can see, if you click through and read the article, there's some great points in there made by Natasha and Graham. And so in normal circumstances, I've created some questions and shared those with our guests, and they're going to just talk to us about this paper over the next quarter of an hour. So without further ado, I'm going to kick off with the first question so that everybody, because we we hear about generative AI, we hear about sort of all these horror stories and also these wonderful opportunities that can be leveraged through generative AI. So just broadly speaking, and I'm no particular person, either of you can answer this, what are the ways in which Gen AI can be employed to enhance data privacy and data security? So who would like to answer that question first? Have a go. You want to go, Graham? Or... Okay, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll pick up on that if you like. Well, there are, the opportunities are whatever we say now, it will change in the years, the months and the years that come because generative AI has taken off and will develop in a number of different ways. But what we can say now is that generative AI is already being utilized for data privacy purposes. An example of that, and perhaps to frame this, generative AI is about the use of AI to create things, whether it's words, whether it's visuals, etc. And one example that we've been working on is for is in the medical profession, where we have people who go to dental training school. Now, if you use x-rays of people's jaws, that can count as personal information. Generative AI has been used to learn from the look and feel of jaws, jaw shapes, etc., and recreate the x-rays in order to help those trainees learn their profession. So a very real example of really personalizing data, but also getting what we need out of it, you know, well-trained dentists. Fantastic. That's really good. Natasha, anything to add to that? Yeah, the same if you look at IT as well. If you look at the test data, for example, that people use for systems, you can use Gen AI to make sure that you use data that's not personal data anymore. So you can use it in different fields. Brilliant. Yeah, that's two really good timely examples. And I think when we think about Gen AI and, and its capabilities, we really are sort of awestruck. And certainly with the most common chat GPT that we've all been hearing about and using and playing with, you can see the power of the information and the way it can prioritize and present information to you that is just mind-blowing. <laughs> it's great. 
Do you think as both privacy practitioners and data experts, what would you say were privacy, would the privacy compliance needs need be reconsidered? Because this is what I'm coming across every day with our clients. What's the implications here of Gen AI in terms of, is it going to heed us? Is it going to benefit? What's your thoughts on it? I think that, as you mentioned, we've got a lot of possibilities that we can use Gen AI for. It's an amazing tool. And I want to focus on the positive parts of it because we've got a lot of negative feelings about it as well. <laughs> and if you look at privacy compliance, data compliance, you can also look at the negative side of that as well. I personally, I like to look at the positive point of view, look at all the possibilities that you get. And I think that if you look at compliance and you look at Gen AI, it goes hand in hand. So no, we don't have to do less. If it comes to compliance, I think we can still focus on compliance and we can even use Gen AI to work on that compliance instead that we do less and do more with Gen AI. We can do both. Gen AI is so versatile. It's so amazing as a tool that it can work together. So we can work on compliance as well on all the possibilities that we can use Gen AI for. Any thoughts or considerations around privacy compliance, Graham? Thanks, Steve. So what I would say is that if you look at regulations such as GDPR, the questions that we have to ask remain the same. It may well be just that some of the answers that we come up with are slightly different. So we still need the same controls, the issues around ownership, the issues around protecting personal information in that process, who are the, effectively the controllers, the owners, uh, where is that data used, where are the processes within that? Do we understand the sourcing and the delivery of that from a records of processing almost point of view as well. Now the terminology might change, but actually those same structures still apply in what we need to do with generative AI as we would do with anything that we do traditionally. Kind of leads us nicely onto the next question around ethics. So what ethical considerations should businesses and or developers, we've got a team of developers here, take into consideration when working with Gen AI to ensure they're respecting user privacy? I think there'll be a lot of people listening in today keen on your answers or your thoughts, because a lot of this is cultural as well as your experience and your background. So Natasha, with the ethical considerations, what are your thoughts on that? What should businesses or developers be considering? Okay, maybe an example of what I've encountered in the past. I had a project lead who came up to me and said, we want to use Gen AI and we can do amazing stuff with it and we can make the city a little bit safer if we use it. So yes, of course you want to do that. And I just asked him a simple question. If you would live in a city where you feel comfortable with the tools that you are using right now, and he was a little bit shocked and he said, why make it so personal? And I said, but that's the main question. Do you feel comfortable with using the tools that you are using right now? If it would affect you as a person. Yeah. And I think that you need to keep in mind that you want to you wanna do your business. You want to make the world a little bit safer, but you need to be aware of, do you want to go that far? Even if you can, if you look at the legislation, if you can do stuff from legislation, you, do you still want to do that? Yeah. And that's the key question that you need to keep asking yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this 
ethical dilemma that you were putting yeah. back on to this individual to say, how would you feel? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if this would affect you. Yes, exactly. Now, that's a fantastic example. Thank you, Natasha. Any, any bills on that, Graham? Yeah, I think it does come down to it's a form of ethics by design rather than privacy by design that we're now looking at. But you touched upon another thing there, I think, Steve, in your intro, which is it's cultural as well. You know, that one of the questions here is, is ethical appliance universal globally because people have different cultures and different views of ethics? What might be permissible in one part of the world may not be in others. And just briefly, one example of that is there is a lot of work now being done in the area of facial profiles. Mm -hmm. um, and in some parts of the world, there's a lot of work being done in that. Now, generative AI is being asked questions like, what is the typical look of a criminal? What is the typical look of someone with particular attributes? Now, that's very dangerous because it takes us back 100 years to the world of eugenics. So the fact that we can do some things doesn't necessarily mean that we should do them. And that's where I think that ethical play becomes very important. That brilliant can do, shouldn't do is absolutely spot on. Yes, thanks. That's great. We are seeing it in every aspect of society, of life. So what role does government and government regulations as the tools they use to try and control or manage this? Is there a role there, first of all, I suppose, is the question for government? And how or what is an effective way of using such tools? Well, fundamentally, there needs to be some form of public accountability in this new area. And we have to channel that through our, our elected representatives in government in order to do that. So it is fundamental that we have controls in place. That doesn't mean that organizations should wait for that to happen. I think good organizations with trusted reputations will be wanting to be almost ahead of government here in terms of, again, the ethical and privacy standards that they mm -hmm. want to put in place. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, you know, really a lot of good organizations, and Natasha and myself, who are wanting to come to us and ask those very, very questions. How do we control this and how do we do it in a way that is safe, protecting our reputation, but also just the right thing to do too? Natasha, do you got any thoughts on that about the role of government in this? Yeah, I think the government should lead by example. So, of course, people will look up to the government and see what guidelines or examples they can provide on how to cope with Gen AI. I think it's very important that they take that leading role and show us how we can do this. And just to add one question, in the Netherlands, is that something that's coming out of your regulator? Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. We're working on guidelines, yeah. And the same here for the ICO, Graham? Yes, and, and other organizations as well. There was the, I think it's the CDEI, and, and lots of discussion through organizations such as the Alan Turing Institute, for example. You know, a, a lot of discussion in there. These will help us set those standards. Yeah, brilliant. So what we're saying is there's a role to be played, lead by example. Public accountability needs to believe it, that we're all going to play nicely. <laughs> the use of this this fantastic tool and technology, but the role of government is to apply some sort of guidance, some safety, how to use and what not to do sort of thing. For those perhaps situations where maybe their ethics is not as, shall we say, shiny <laughs> as some organisations in terms of the use of this information and data. So that's great. Thank you for that. So as this becomes more advanced, 
there is a growing concern, and I've read about this just this weekend, about the highly realistic fake content that can really be damaging for individuals. So how, what can we do about that? I mean, if there's a campaign against you and someone's using this technology, what can we do about that? Natasha, what's your thoughts on, on that, please? Yeah, th that's a difficult one because it's it's becoming so advanced that you almost can't spot the difference. So, of course, we've got all the, the AI acts coming up saying that we need an earmark for if it's fake, yes or no. So that's one of the steps that we can take. And if you look at the individual, of course, you can be aware of what you're sharing online and what that can result into. So a little bit is already what we used to do now, creating awareness on what is possible and how you should or how you can keep yourself and your own identity safe online and also work on regulations for that guidelines on how to process it. And if you see something online, don't just assume it's true. Make sure that you do your research as for yourself as well. Yeah. See if you can find that content anywhere else and then you can make sure if it you can at least check is it true or is it maybe is it a false message? Fantastic. Thank you. Um conscious of the time, I'm afraid well, yeah. as I said, <laughs> this is whiz by and but I'm really enjoying this conversation. So I've got two more questions. The next one, I'm gonna ask you, Graham, how do we measure the effectiveness of privacy controls for Gen AI in the organizations that you're advising that you're working with at CapGemini? This is an evolving field, first of all, is to say. I mean, one is obviously an aspect of that is in terms of reach will be the end metric, if you like. Yeah. It's just seeing issues as a result of of the work that you're doing. The second is making sure that any Gen AI program does go through that, or in a better word, DPIA type process, enhanced process, that the access to the tools, not necessarily res restricted, but understood who has access to the development of tools. So a lot of organizations currently going through their hypothesis stage testing them out whatever yes. and that's exactly the right time to put in those controls because part of it's going to be about that education to understand the need to put the control so some controls around that and metrics around that need to be there and if you're not sure who and where then you should be worried as a dpo <laughs> you need to be on the front foot to make sure that we have that understanding within the organization natasha the last question for you and it's a bit of a hybrid one i'm afraid but in your experience you're advising at capgemini netherlands lots of organizations around this so what would you say were the key top three things that you would advise an organization that's looking to this, as Graham said, you know, they might be hypothesizing and actually testing that theories out. But what would you say the top three tips you would give? And then I'm going to come back to you, Graham, for your last thoughts on the same. Yeah. So if you look at all the possibilities that you get from Gen AI, first of all, you need to create awareness within the organization. It's, it's a great tool to use, but make sure that people know how to use it. And if they put data in it, that they know that it will be used again. So always start with awareness. If Even if it's privacy, cybersecurity, or Gen AI, it's the main topic that you want to start with. Yeah. <laughs> Second of all, look at how it can benefit your organization. Don't look at the negative side of Gen AI, but look at the positive side. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then, and 
third of all, use it for your business purposes. So make sure that if you look at the, the benefits that you can get from Gen AI, how can you work with it? And how does it maybe also help with your compliance and also help with making sure that you fit in with all the legislation that you get? Fantastic. Work for your organization instead of against it. Thank you, Natasha. Really good. Three really good, strong points there. Graham, any others that Natasha hasn't asked? Because it would be unfair to ask you to list all three another. No, I, I totally agree on the awareness. I think the only other points I would add are apply the same controls that you do to other things. It's just in a different way. I'll just emphasize that. Same controls. And make sure that you don't forget about, it's not just about the change, it's the running. If you don't monitor and manage it once it goes into production, then you're storing up issues. Because it might be fine when you implement, but as we know, AI can change. Right. Natasha Peterman from the Netherlands, Capgemini practice in privacy. Graham Hunt from the Data Insights team in the UK. On behalf of Picasso, I want to thank you both for joining us today. It's been a fascinating conversation and we could have carried on, I'm sure, for another 10, 15 minutes. But sadly, our listeners have expectations. We said that these would be nice and short and sweet, and we want to maintain that. But thank you so much for giving up your time for your article. So listeners, please click on the link below. Give us your feedback. Don't forget to subscribe to us. And please share this podcast amongst your followers or amongst your colleagues and friends. I'm Steve Wright signing off for today. Thank you once again for listening to this podcast. We look forward to speaking again in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you.